0: This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 237 Werewolves. I'm Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. The story of the werewolf is a metaphor for the battle of good and evil within all of us. Are you human or are you an animal? You get to choose. This week, we will discuss the closest thing to a werewolf the Bible has to offer, the original werewolf and his modern kinfolk, my own checkered history with Halloween and trick-or-treating, and a dark, stormy night full of werewolves that brought a smile to the face of all the Hammondses. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Lycanthropy is an actual medical condition, literally translated from the Greek as "wolf Wolfman. Superstitions about lycanthropes are ancient and cross cultural. Some were said to become wolves when they ate human flesh. Many are connected to stories about animal spirit guides and reincarnation. But it does happen in real life from time to time. People are convinced they are literally animals. In the case of genuine lycanthropes, wolves. It's a psychiatric disorder, completely separate from people today who self-identify as dogs, cats, or pieces of furniture that somehow, some way, manage to assert their rights as humans when it's convenient. But that's another episode for another day. Daniel 4.33 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon, quote, was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky, until his hair grew like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. End quote. Okay, strictly speaking, that doesn't exactly sound much like wolf behavior. Then again, maybe Nebuchadnezzar was too slow to catch rabbits and deer like an actual wolf would. He ate grass because that's all he could get. In any case, it's close enough to mention here. If you don't think it's fair to suggest that Nebuchadnezzar was kind of sorta like a werewolf, well start your own podcast. The point here is there's a difference between humans and animals. God made us different. We bear his image in a way that nothing else in the world does. As such, he calls us to a higher level of existence. We are obligated to live moral lives, to serve the needs of others, to grow in knowledge and wisdom. And most especially, we are obligated to praise the one who made us the way we are. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't doing that. That's why God gave him the dream about the tall tree that was cut down. When he summoned Daniel to interpret the dream... Daniel gave him the bad news respectfully, but directly. God was bringing Nebuchadnezzar down because of his arrogance and pride. He finished the message by saying in verse 27, quote, Therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right, and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps they will be an extension of your prosperity. End quote. Wolves don't show mercy to the needy. Wolves eat the needy. It's what they are supposed to do. It's part of the ecological balance of nature. Animals do what animals do. Their instincts guide them. God made them that way. There's no such thing as the right thing. There's only the natural thing. Humans are different, or at least we're supposed to be. But we've been told for five or six generations now, by lots of people with lots of extra initials after their names, that there is no difference between animals and humans, other than brain stems and opposable thumbs. It's no surprise, then, that people who buy into the humans-as-animals philosophy choose to give in to the wolf inside when it suits them. After all, why wouldn't they? It's what animals do. And when those animals happen to be in positions of power, well, that does not bode well for the less advantaged. One of the signs of an advanced civilization is the protection of rights for everyone in that civilization. I don't know anyone who disagrees with that statement. And yet more and more we're told as individuals in that so-called civilization that we should cast off inhibitions such as politeness, selflessness, and restraint to embrace instead a free flow of emotions, situation ethics, lying, cheating, stealing, whatever gets you what your animal instincts crave. And after a few decades of animals teaching humans how to become animals, civilization as a concept has started to look like a joke. None of us likes the result. But precious few are willing to accept the obvious cause and pursue the obvious remedy. Like with Nebuchadnezzar, the cause is pride. The remedy is humility before God. It seems Nebuchadnezzar was conscious of his bedraggled state, at least to the extent that he was able to remember it and learn from it. We are too. In the end, you and your neighbors, even the worst of them, are human beings. They are capable of change. And more importantly, you are capable of humility and humanity, whether they join you in your sanity or not. Embrace the spirit. Reject the wolf. This is what I've been reading. The Werewolf of Paris by Guy Endor gets credit for being the very first werewolf novel. It was quite the eye-opener back in 1933 and has spawned an entire genre of fiction since then. The book centers around a child born to a young French woman who was molested by a Catholic priest. The priest is consumed with evil thoughts, including dreams in which he takes the form of a wolf. The child, Bertrand, eventually begins transforming at night into a wolf-like creature that wreaks havoc in the area. His uncle, Amar, eventually discovers the horrible secret and with great effort manages to convince Bertrand as well. Instead of turning himself over to the authorities, however, Bertrand runs away to Paris, thinking he can regulate his own behavior. And to a degree, he does. He falls in love with a woman named Sophie, who agrees to let him drink a little of her own blood from time to time to satisfy his urges under controlled circumstances. It's successful enough to convince Amar that his nephew might be able to live a normal life after all. Well, normal enough, at least. But, of course, Bertrand's true nature wins out. He's caught feeding on a soldier, he's arrested, and eventually both he and Sophie commit suicide. The book concludes with a report that Bertrand's grave was discovered to hold the body of a dog, which, despite having been buried for eight years, had not completely decomposed yet. It would be fair to say that The Werewolf of Paris is not for everyone. It's dark, it's gruesome, it's depressing. There's never really any hope the story will get a happy ending, and sure enough, it doesn't. I like a good happy ending. But it's important to remember from time to time that life doesn't work that way. We are not owed a smile and a laugh at the end of our story or the story of our loved ones. The world's full of evil people doing evil things. Wishing things were different won't make it so. Bertrand is evil because he was brought into the world in a particularly horrific way. But plenty of real world people over the centuries have had similar origin stories. It's ridiculous to argue that one's culture, parentage, and upbringing define his life in an unavoidable and irredeemable way. I believe in a merciful God who is looking for reasons to save us, not reasons to destroy us. I believe the gospel is the power of God and the salvation, Romans 1.16, and that any soul who's looking for God will find a God who's looking for him. But there's a core of evil inside each one of us looking for an opportunity to take control. Jesus said in John 14, 30, that the rule of the world had nothing in him. That's not true for me. It's like the band NXS said way back in my youth, the devil inside, the devil inside, every single one of us, the devil inside. I go round and round with Romans 7, verses 14 through 25. Paul, in this passage, describes himself as being of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. Does that mean Paul has impulses over which he has Ultimately, no control? That seems completely incompatible with his argument just a chapter earlier, in which he says we ceased to be slaves of sin when we became slaves of righteousness. It seems more likely Paul meant that he, when serving God under the law, was at that point a slave to sin, and that he's rescued from this body of death through Jesus. Still, it seems the last verse in some way describes our experience after conversion. Quote, so then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin, End quote. We still see our flesh given over to ungodly pursuits, not because God wasn't strong enough to save us, but because we aren't strong enough to submit to him. And we rejoice that our weakness does not get in the way of God's grace. As chapter 8 begins, quote, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death, end quote. Bertrand could not save himself, not with Sophie's help, not with his uncle's help, not with his best efforts on his best days. And you can't either. Thankfully, you don't have to. Jesus has done all the saving that needs to be done. Now go out and live a life that honors your Savior and that doesn't wallow in your weakness. This is what I've been hearing. I have an attitude about Halloween. I won't lie to you. I'm opposed to sending my children out into the world to beg for food. I'm opposed to society shaming us into buying overpriced sugary snacks and giving them away to total strangers. I'm opposed to teenagers glomming onto a tradition clearly intended for young children just so they can get free stuff. I'm opposed to whittling away at our wonderful Thanksgiving Day traditions from the front end, while Christmas traditions whittle away from the back end. I'm not too keen on the implied threats against health and property that are at the core of the whole trick-or-treat concept. And I'll say this at least in passing, although your toddler is absolutely precious, all dressed up as a ladybug. Teenagers and adults wandering the streets dressed up as occultic figures such as werewolves, vampires, and witches shows a level of familiarity with evil that I am not comfortable with, and I will just leave it at that. All that being said, usually the Hammonds participate in the trick-or-treat tradition, at least from the distribution angle. Any opportunity to mix and mingle with the neighbors is an opportunity to make an impression, and I don't want to be the Grinch house. Apologies for mixing my holiday metaphors there. I'm trying to show the kindness and generosity of heart that comes with being a child of God, and I'd hate to muddy the message over a few candy bars. And to be honest, most of what happens on Halloween night ranges between harmless and downright adorable. So yes, you can expect a handful of candy if you ring my doorbell on the evening of the 31st. It'll even be the good stuff, not just dum-dums, dots, and hot tamales. Hal Hammond's famous tightwad, caught in a moment of weakness. Take advantage of me while you can. I say all that to say this. Since moving into our current neighborhood, trick-or-treating has taken on a new context. Our first Halloween here, we hardly got any visitors at all. Frankly, I was delighted. More Snickers bars for me. Maybe this just wasn't a trick-or-treating kind of neighborhood. Last year, though, we noticed the trick-or-treaters were out in force. And they ignored us, passed right by us. The lights were on and everything. I started to wonder if we were on a watch list of some sort. Don't go to number 104. He's a Halloween hater. I didn't get it. I still don't. Pepper and I say hi to all the little kids when we're out walking. I let them pet her if mom and dad say it's okay. I keep her away if they look nervous. And then they repay me by forcing me to eat my own candy? By letting me watch Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein in peace? How dare they? I'm genuinely torn this year. Should I give the little brats another chance? Should I dress up like Willy Wonka and upgrade to full-size Toblerone bars? Should I camp out in the driveway and dare them to ignore me again? Should I turn out the lights and go to the used bookstore in search of Stephen King novels? Honestly, anything would be better than sitting on the couch with a bowl full of candy, wondering why no one wants to be my friend. It's like it's 7th grade all over again. Sometimes person A doesn't fit in with group B, and that's all there is to it. But I urge you, on behalf of 13-year-old Hal and everyone else who feels like they're not invited to sit with the cool kids, be aware of others. Choosing to have your children not ring my doorbell on Halloween is probably the poorest example of this I can think of. Honestly, I'll be fine, no matter what does or doesn't happen. But there are people in your life who think of you as the cool kid, believe it or not, who would like to be included in your life more than they currently are. Opening your door to them does not necessarily mean making them your new BFF or agreeing to dog sit for them whenever they leave town. Most likely, they'd be absolutely thrilled just to have your undivided attention for a minute or two. And if your instinct is to quickly shift the shoe to the other foot to say that you're the neglected one and your neighbors are the heartless ones, I'm not in position to tell you that you're wrong. But I'm still right with the point I'm making. You have the opportunity to prioritize the needs of others. And if you have the opportunity, you have the obligation. Jesus says so. It is better to give than to receive. Acts 20 verse 35. I'll make you a deal. I'll be less crotchety about giving out candy and not receiving proper expressions of gratitude. You find someone you can give your attention to and find someone to forgive who has been withholding attention from you. Maybe if we all work at it, by Halloween time next year, we'll live in a world with fewer monsters in it. Would that be a treat? This is what I've been playing. In One Night Ultimate Werewolf, you have werewolves and you have villagers. You also have special villagers with special characteristics. A great interactive app, complete with spooky music and voiceover, prompts the players to act as their role dictates, while everyone else's eyes are closed. Unless the app specifically tells you to do otherwise, you're not allowed to recheck your identity. So you may play successfully the entire game as a werewolf, only to discover the troublemaker turned you into a villager, and vice versa. It may even turn out there's no werewolf in the game at all, and the villagers all turn on one another for no real reason. It's not the sort of game that builds trust in your fellow uninfected human beings. Like most party games, the point is not to devise a strategy that will guide you to certain victory. The point is to survive the chaos and have a great time doing it. And that's exactly what we've done over the years with groups at our house, especially the young people. But my family's favorite one-night ultimate werewolf moment was not at a party setting at all. It was... wait, let me set the scene properly. It's a dark and stormy night in northern Florida. Tornadoes are in the area. Some reports indicate that one has landed within a mile or two of our house. Are the reports accurate? Are they from 10 minutes ago or 10 seconds? Exactly where is our house on this map they're showing on the news? Why did we buy a house with all these windows? Our family's reaction to situations like this is pretty standard. We secure our physical safety as much as possible. In this case, we huddle up in the hallway. Then we pray over it for our own safety and for the safety of others. And then, if we have enough light, we play a game. And One Night Ultimate Werewolf was remarkably suited to the situation. You don't really need a table. In fact, the closer you can huddle together, the better. You don't need much light. The darkness actually adds to the ambiance. Essentially, mocking the idea of danger helped us put our actual circumstances in proper perspective. Yes, the danger was real. No, it almost certainly was not going to affect us directly. It was not a time for panic. It was a time for being grateful for four walls and a ceiling, for the comfort of family, for the mercy of God that had helped us avoid desperate situations so many times in the past. I'm fully aware that you may not have been as sheltered as we have been over the years. And if so, I hope you don't think I'm mocking your pain. I could not sympathize with you more. But if your cell service and or internet connection are stable enough to be listening to this podcast, I can assume you're escaping the worst horrors life has to offer. Give thanks and pray for those less fortunate. And when you've done that, don't feel guilty about enjoying yourself. Your pleasure does not contribute to someone else's pain. At least I certainly hope it doesn't. It's okay. It's okay. In fact, it's helpful to huddle up with loved ones, celebrate your prosperity, and maybe even do a little gloating, Elijah-style. It's like you're on Mount Carmel, surrounded by forces of evil who are doing their best to show you up. And there you are, alone with God, choosing to see the humor in it all. Mocking the devil is bad. The devil is serious, and he should be taken seriously. But that doesn't mean you have to cower in fear every time you hear the lion roaring. You can be like the worthy woman in Proverbs thirty-one twenty-five. It reads in the New Living Translation, She is clothed with strength and dignity, and she laughs without fear of the future. Surrendering to fear is kind of like becoming a werewolf now that I think about it. You're isolated. You're fleeing in terror. You have no hope for the future. If you're a child of God, you have no excuse for that sort of life. You are, as the great Fanny J. Crosby wrote, safe in the arms of Jesus. So laugh when you think about your future. It could not possibly be any brighter. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous. Fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammond's Citizen of Heaven signing off.